0: Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have all been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about John List, a man whom you're probably all familiar with. John was a devout Lutheran, an accountant, and a husband and father to three children. As a frequent job hopper, John got to the point where he was not able to provide his family with the stability he had hoped to, and that delivered a huge blow to his self-worth and self-esteem. When he gets laid off from yet another job, he crafts a twisted plot to save face and redeem himself and his family. But before we get started today, let's hear our terrifying tidbit. According to the US Department of Justice, 8 in 10 murderers who killed a family member were male. Men make up 83% of spouse murderers and 75% of murderers who killed a boyfriend or girlfriend. The weapon of choice is typically a firearm. Around 3 quarters of family violence victims were female and 3 quarters of family violence perpetrators were male. Most family violence offenders were also over 30 years old. Since 1997, 93% of family violence offenders in jail have been male and 80% were between 25 and 54. This is all to say that of all the members in a family, the father is the most likely to harm or kill other members. Our story takes place in good old Westfield Union County. Despite being the location of both the Watcher House and the List Murders, Westfield is one of the most affluent towns in the entire country. Here we have another A-plus town, according to Niche.com, with a population of almost 31,000 people. The median home value was over $800,000, and the median rent is around $2,000. So this is a pretty upscale area. Over three-quarters of the adult population has a college degree, bringing the median household income to about $185,000 a year. So this is all to say that this is a very ritzy area. Although there, you know, is some crime, that's to be expected when you can't go grocery shopping without seeing at least 30 G-wagons in the parking lot. John Emil List was born in Bay City, Michigan on September 17, 1925, as the only child to John and Alma List, who were German immigrants. He was raised in a strict Lutheran household where failure and living life outside of the doctrines from the Bible were unacceptable. Providing for one's family and maintaining a certain image in the community and in church were taught as important values in the List household. In 1943, he graduated from Bay City Central High School and then enlisted in the Army as a laboratory technician during World War II. The following year, his father passed away. In 1946, after John was discharged from the army, he attended college at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where he earned his bachelor's degree in business administration and then his master's in accounting. When the Korean War was intensifying in 1950, he was called back into service. While stationed in Fort Eustis in Virginia, John met his future wife, Helen Morris Taylor, who was actually a widow of an officer who had been killed in the war. They quickly got married a little over a year later in Baltimore, December 1st, 1951. Afterwards, John, Helen, and Helen's daughter, Brenda, all moved out to California. Still in the Army, List was transferred to the Finance Corps, where he worked until his second tour was completed in 1952. The List then moved to Michigan, where John had a job in Detroit, then Kalamazoo, all doing accounting. While the List were living in Kalamazoo, their three children, Patricia, John, and Freddie were born. In 1959, John became a supervisor at his job, and the following year, Brenda, his stepdaughter, got married and moved out of the home. Then, the rest of the family moved again to Rochester, New York because John got a job at Xerox, where he eventually became the Director of Accounting Services. In 1965, he got another job in a very high-up position at a bank as Vice President and Comptroller in Jersey City. Then they moved into a mansion called Breeze Knoll in Westfield, New Jersey. This place had 18 rooms, including a ballroom. You know your house is crazy when it has an official name. Now moving into 1971. John List was a 46-year-old accountant and had been married to Helen, also 46, for 20 years. The couple's three children were all teenagers now. Patricia was 16, John was 15, and Freddie was 13. They were all involved in various activities, well-liked at school, and the older ones had part-time jobs. John's mother, Alma, also lived with the family in her own apartment on the third floor of the house. John was also a Sunday school teacher. Helen was an interesting woman. She and John got married because they thought that she was pregnant, but she actually lied about it so that John would marry her. She had contracted syphilis from her first husband who had died in the Korean War, which caused her to be blind and largely immobile. John didn't know that she had syphilis when they got married because she hid it from him and pressured him to get married in Maryland, which is one of the few states that didn't require a premarital syphilis test at the time. It's absolutely wild that syphilis was so prevalent back then that a test was mandated before people got married. It's not a bad idea by any means, but also like jeez the syphilis pretty much eroded both helen's mental and physical health and she fell from being an upbeat attractive young woman to an angry irrationally anxious shut-in that often emasculated john both in front of their family and in public helen was also a really bad alcoholic like not the functioning kind where you can't tell you could tell with her so as you can imagine they did not have a happy marriage the list had also been living well above their means for years Not to belittle anyone's professions, but they lived in an 18-room house with six people and one person working as an accountant. I know accountants get paid well, but I don't think they make that kind of money. But more than that, John was laid off from his position as vice president at the bank in Jersey City because it closed. Because he couldn't face the humiliation of telling his family that he had been laid off yet again, he just didn't. He would leave for work as he normally would, applied for jobs and went to job interviews, or he would hang out at the Westfield train station until the time when he would usually have come home from work. He even had to resort to stealing money from his mom to not default on the mortgage. John had to regretfully depend on his kids' part-time jobs to help support the family. Although he told them they get jobs under the guise of teaching them responsibility and learning how to manage their money, all would have been lost much sooner if they hadn't been handing over their paychecks to their father. John didn't like the direction that the family was heading in morally. Patricia was getting into acting and he hated it. He thought of acting as unchristian. He felt like all of them were fading away from the church and its teachings and that terrified him. Something had to be done. On November 9th, he asked each of his family members how they would want their funeral to be. Who would they want to come? How would they want to be dressed? He proceeded to tell different people different stories about where they'd be during the upcoming weeks. Bree's Knoll was empty because the family was allegedly visiting Helen's sick mother. But when a month had passed and no one came home, people started to get concerned. It was strange because the lights were on in all of the rooms during the day and nighttime, but it didn't look like anyone was moving around inside. Once the light bulbs started burning out and random rooms were becoming dark, the police were called. Even Patricia's drama teacher was growing concerned that she hadn't shown up for practice in weeks. When police arrived at the residence on December 7th, 1971, they entered through an unlocked window that led to the basement. The house was almost completely silent except for some creepy music softly playing in the background. A cop who was on the scene said it sounded like funeral music. As they moved through the home, the smell of decomposition grew stronger and stronger. Once they reached the ballroom, they saw what the source was. They found four dead bodies lying on sleeping bags that were soaked in blood. There were three bodies lined up right next to each other, the three Liz children, and another body lying horizontally across the three of them, which was Helen. All of them had clearly been shot at a close range in various ways. Police noticed a trail of blood from the kitchen to the ballroom, which led them to believe that they were all shot in the kitchen and then dragged into the ballroom onto the sleeping bags. In the kitchen, they found blood-soaked paper towels and a bloody mop in the trash can. Whoever did this attempted to clean up the crime scene. Police then head upstairs where they find 84-year-old Alma List, who was shot in the head above her left eye. When they headed back downstairs, they found two guns and a five-page letter written by John List addressed to the pastor of the church that the List attended. John both admitted to the murders and explained why he did it. John lost his job but assumed his family would immediately go on food stamps, so to prevent that, he killed them all. His family's perceived distance from Christianity and closeness to immorality also terrified him, and he was scared that they would stop attending church. Part of the note read, there's too much evil in this world. He figured if they died now, their souls would be saved and they could go to heaven, and that gave him peace. He even prayed over his family after he killed them, saying it was the least he could do. Neighbors told police that John didn't have many friends and most people thought he was weird. He and the family didn't leave the house much, which I'm assuming was because he wouldn't let them do anything that wasn't church or school related. Two days after the bodies were discovered, police found Liz's abandoned car at JFK Airport in New York. There was a parking voucher in the car dated November 10th, but they couldn't find any evidence that he had taken a flight from there. They had dozens of investigators from Union County looking high and low for John List, but they couldn't find any sign of him both here and internationally. So the manhunt began for the man who murdered his family. Union County police released a nationwide murder warrant for List which landed on the desks of every FBI field office, post office, everywhere. The facts they had were these. The guns they found in John's desk were the murder weapons and the victims had been dead for about a month before police discovered their bodies. They knew how and why the family died, The motive and the culprit were clear, they just had to find him. There were a couple different theories around the country of what people thought happened to John. Some thought he had committed suicide, others thought they had seen him at their local grocery store somewhere out in the Midwest, but the truth was that the police couldn't find him for nearly 18 years. Despite this, they never let the case close. Eventually, the authorities got to what would be their last but most successful option. In 1989, they managed to convince the TV show America's most wanted to feature the List murders despite the fact that, although this was an active case, it was now nearly 20 years old. The host, John Walsh, whose own young son was murdered back in 1981, was interested in the story and wanted to see John get caught, so the show agreed to run an episode about John List. The only snag was that at the end of each episode of America's Most Wanted, they would show a recent photo of the suspect. But the most recent photo they had of John List was incredibly old, and there was no way he still looked like that. So, the next course of action was to reach out to a forensic sculptor named Frank Bender. His job was to use clay to reconstruct the faces of aging criminals or identify badly decomposed bodies based upon their skulls. It was really an incredible fusion of scientific knowledge of how faces age over time due to genetics and habits, as well as recognizing race, age, and gender based upon a person's skull and soft tissue, and then the artistic ability to even make it come to life. Frank worked with pathologists, odontologists, anthropologists, and detectives to get the whole story about his subject. The people working on this case tasked him with figuring out what John List's face would look like now based upon 30-year-old photos. However, to accomplish this, he enlisted the help of Richard Walter, a forensic psychologist, to help complete the picture of why John would have aged a specific way. Knowing a great deal about a person can give you some clues as to how they might age, like their habits like smoking or drinking or attitudes like if they smile or frown a lot. Richard and Frank poured over photographs of John and his family members and newspaper articles, Anything they could find that would teach them about this man. They researched his upbringing and learned about his stern German parents, his domineering mother, and his lack of freedom and self-expression as his life was completely intertwined with the church and Lutheran faith. Although he excelled academically, he didn't really do too well in his life aside from that. So he had little to no social skills, and he didn't have many friends, and he kept being laid off from jobs, which I'm assuming was because he was generally unlikable, and he was bad at managing his money and put image above all else. Frank and Richard concluded that List probably killed his family out of rage and retaliation because he was ashamed of how much he had failed in his life. When they pieced his life together, they could see how he had spent it feeling aggravated and controlled by women who disrespected and belittled him. The psychological profile that the two men were able to develop only strengthened their preconceived notions about what kind of guy List was. This was not a man who had led a happy life at any point before the murders. Frank crafted the corner of the bus's mouth to be downturned to express his presumed anxiety of getting caught by the police. Based upon how his parents aged, Frank added sagging jowls and a receding hairline. They also learned that List had a surgical scar behind his right ear, which caused Frank to research how scars age. After the bus was crafted to his satisfaction, Frank painted it with a lifelike precision and added a suit and tie because that's what the two men figured he would be wearing most of the time. They pinned him as a creature of habit. They also gave him thick-rimmed glasses because they didn't think he cared enough about image to get contacts, but they also figured he'd be wearing a different style of glasses than the ones he wore 20-30 years ago. They theorized he wanted to hide his face more out of shame by wearing dark, thick frames, but also look more capable and intelligent. Finally, Sunday, May 21st, 1989 came. The John List episode of America's Most Wanted aired, and they displayed the bust that Bender and Walter had collaborated on. A family in Denver, Colorado recognized the man on their television. A woman named Wanda Flannery and her daughter had tuned into the show that night, and they were shocked. They noticed a striking resemblance between John List and their neighbor, Bob Clark. All of the details aligned. He was an accountant, a devout Lutheran, had a long scar behind his ear, typically dressed in suits, and the kickers were the jowls and the glasses. By the time the bust appeared on screen, the two women were certain that their quiet, awkward neighbor was actually a fugitive on the run because he murdered his whole family. Wanda quickly phoned the FBI and let them know that her former neighbor had moved to Midlothian, Virginia, a suburb of Richmond. The agent went to his home and spoke to his new wife, who John had met at a church event. She was shocked and confused as to why the FBI was questioning her about her calm, mild-mannered husband. They got the details they needed from her to feel comfortable proceeding. The FBI found his ass at work in Richmond and arrested him on June 1st, 1989, less than two weeks after the airing of the America's Most Wanted episode. An FBI special agent named Kevin August approached him and their conversation went like this. Kevin said, are you Mr. Clark? John responded, yes. Are you John List? No, I'm Robert Peter Clark. From his distinguishable scar and a fingerprint match on both his military papers and a gun permit application he had filled out one month before the murders, they were certain that Bob Clark was John List. What was really cool was that John was wearing the same style of glasses that Frank Bender assumed he would be wearing and put on his sculpture of John. Their resemblance was truly uncanny, and its accuracy directly led to the apprehension of a mass murderer, John List. After resisting quite a bit, John finally confessed his true identity on February 16, 1990. John's trial detailed how he thoroughly planned the execution of his family members. We already spoke about how he lost his jobs, the bills were piling up, and he felt his family was veering towards a godless lifestyle. At the time, he saw this as the only way to preserve his family's purity and holiness. But what it really did was provide John with a clean slate so he could start over with a life that wasn't so disappointing. The day of November 9th went down like this. After the children left for school around 9am, he shot Helen point blank in the back of her head. He then went to his mother's third floor apartment and murdered her, leaving her body in her room. He placed Helen's body on a sleeping bag and dragged it into the ballroom. Then, John decided that he had some errands to run. So he went out and requested for the mail, milk, and newspaper to stop being delivered to the List home. He cashed out some of his mother's bonds and closed his and her bank accounts. Afterwards, he sat at the table and had some lunch while his wife's dead body was lying on the ground a couple of feet away. As the kids came home from school, he killed them. First, Patricia, the oldest, came home and she was murdered. Then Freddie, the youngest. John, the older son, realized his father's intentions and fought back for a while. Liz ended up shooting him ten times because he wouldn't die. The mission was now complete. He proceeded to drive the kids' bodies to the ballroom, lined them all up, and cleaned up most of the blood. Liz prayed over his family, then wrote the letter. He believed that if the house had gone into foreclosure, his wife would divorce him, take the kids, and leave the church. That kind of demolition of the nuclear family was seriously against everything he had learned during his childhood and in the church. He lowered the thermostat to slow the rate of decomposition, turned on all the lights in the house, turned on the radio to a classic music station, then hopped around to a couple of places before he ended up in Denver, Colorado. A court-appointed psychiatrist said that Liz suffered from OCD that made him believe there were only two solutions to his problems go on welfare, or kill his family to ensure their ascent to heaven and then beg for forgiveness so that he could join them. Going on welfare wouldn't have been an option because of the shame and the shattering of their image. That would have made him feel like the ultimate failure, the one his wife and parents made him feel like he always was. A psychiatrist for the prosecution testified that what John was really suffering from was a midlife crisis. Once he felt like he resolved his issues and got through the crisis, he was finally living a happy life for the next 20 years. He had built a new life in Denver. He got a new social security number as Robert Peter Clark, made friends with his neighbors, joined a new Lutheran church, and even got married again to a woman who never suspected a thing. John told her his wife died of cancer and that he had no children. He even worked as a comptroller again from 1979 to 1986, and he would drive the shut-in members of his congregation to the church. On the outside, John List, or rather Bob Clark, was a hardworking, active member of the community. Their argument was basically that his unrelenting religious upbringing altered his mind and made him insane. Unfortunately, his actions did not point to someone who was not of sound mind. Everything was too meticulously planned out. From his matter-of-fact tone and level of detail in his notes, all the steps he went through to cover his tracks and start a new life, and how during the trial, he still felt like he did the right thing by his family. He ensured that they had a place in heaven because if left to their own devices, he believed they never would have made it. The jury wasn't convinced of his innocence, so on April 12, 1990, they found John Emil List guilty of five counts of first-degree murder. John tried to appeal his conviction, claiming that PTSD from being in World War II and the Korean War made him do what he did. Okay, so which was it that made you lose your mind? Your parents or your time in the wars? He also argued that the note he wrote for the pastor wasn't for anyone else and it shouldn't have been used as evidence. The appeals were all rejected. He also appeared on a TV interview with Connie Chung in 2002, where she asked him why he didn't just commit suicide if he felt so terribly about himself, instead of killing his whole family. He responded that suicide would have made it so he couldn't go to heaven, so he figured if he killed his family and he got the privilege to die of natural causes, then he could join them in heaven. In reference to systematically killing each of his family members, he responded, It's just like D-Day. There's no stopping after you start. Later on in his life, he did express some regret in killing his family, but by that point, no one really cared. John List died in 2008 at the age of 82 from complications with pneumonia. A fun fact, in 1972, the FBI thought that John could have been D.B. Cooper because he disappeared only two weeks before the plane was hijacked and that whole situation went down. They even questioned him after they caught him in 1989, but he denied having anything to do with the D.B. Cooper case. And because there was no direct evidence tying him to any part of the case, the FBI stopped investigating him and have since solved that mystery. In case you were wondering whatever happened to Breeze Knoll, it was left empty after all the bodies were cleared out. Then, less than a year later in August 1972, it was destroyed by a fire, which authorities assumed was arson. To this day, they have no idea who ignited that fire. What sucks is that the ballroom had a stained glass skylight, which was rumored to be a signed Tiffany original, which is said to be worth around $700,000 today. One of my sources mused that if he had just sold the skylight or even just the house, the family could have stayed afloat for a long while after, you know, he lost his job. In 1974, a new house was built where Breeze once stood. So yeah, John Liss would have rather had his family be dead than potentially poor and living freely. Do I think his childhood and war trauma left him damaged? Of course. He reiterated over and over again about his duty of being the father and properly providing for his family. He felt like he'd failed and like his life was just spiraling out of control. When you're not taught appropriate coping mechanisms or life skills and you're feeling a supreme dissatisfaction with your life, Murder does seem like an appropriate solution. Also, he allegedly planned to kill Helen's sick mother too if she had been staying at their house during the murders. Something that I thought was really cool is that Richard Walter's psychological profile of Liszt was dead on. He was still working as a CPA and was heavily involved in the Lutheran Church. Between what he predicted and Frank Bender sculpted, I was totally fascinated with the concept of forensic sculpting and forensic psychology. These were some of the coolest things I had never heard of before researching this case. Two asides I had wondered were, how Brenda, Helen's first daughter, felt about all of this. Her mother and three younger half-siblings were brutally murdered by her stepfather, and if she had the misfortune of visiting around November 9th, she probably would have been a victim too. I wonder if she sensed anything weird or off about John, or if she was just as surprised as everyone else. Also, I don't know what it was that made Helen want to marry John so much that she lied and omitted crucial information about herself. Maybe it was grief, maybe it was the degenerative effects of an untreated syphilis infection, who knows. Anyway, this was a high-profile tragedy akin to the Amityville horrors. I feel horrible for the slain members of the List family, and I'm glad justice was eventually served, even if it seemed like it never would be. But... That is it for me today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. I would also love it if you followed me on Instagram at GrimTalesGS. I will see you all next week. Goodbye.